0: Take a look at the slide. Who is this? That is Robin, the Boy Wonder. A few months ago, I told you that uh, when we were talking about this, told you Robin was one of my favorite superheroes when I was a kid. Did you have a favorite superhero? Who is? Uh, raise your hand. Somebody over here. Who was your favorite superhero when you were a kid? Who was your favorite? Come on, somebody, raise your hand. Yeah. Who was it? Batman. Batman. Yes. Mighty Mouse. Mighty Mouse. Oh, that's <laughs> great. Mighty Mouse. That's awesome. Yes. Hulk. <laughs> I stay angry all the time. Yeah. Um, okay. Think about now, consider that everybody had a superhero that you liked the most. Consider this. Why did you look up to that particular hero? I liked Robin because he didn't have any special powers, right? He, he just had his own wits and strength, just like Batman. And how could you not love those great lines? Holy eggplant, Batman. I mean, that was incredible. Um, heroes. Did you know this? Heroes are necessary for a civilization, they are necessary. Heroes make a difference in society by drawing everyone around them up to their level. They're very, very important. Uh, think about a sports hero like, uh, like Michael Jordan. Jordan, a great basketball player, probably the greatest of all time. But get this. Did you know this? I am told that every athlete who ever played with MJ has better statistics for the years he played with Michael Jordan than the years he played without Jordan. And, and it's a significant difference. That's incredible. That's incredible. That Joshua Jordan wasn't just the best player of all time, he raised the level of everybody around him. And today we're going to meet someone else who is like that, one of the greatest heroes in history. This is a man who raised the level of his society so high that the entire country, his entire country, was faithful to the Lord all his days. It's the original boy wonder, the young King Josiah. For those of you who are just joining us, we have been learning from the kings of Judah This summer, we have been humbly sitting at their feet to see how we might grow up better. Earlier in the series, I showed you this simple chart as a way to know where we are in biblical Jewish history, and this is where we are today. We are right here near the end of the kingdom of Judah's period uh, before their exile. I showed you this because a a history timeline can work like, uh, like this, like a clothes rack. It gives you something upon which to hang information so you can do something with it. It's a shocking idea, kids, but if you hang clothes up, you actually can access them when you want them. They're, they're available to you instead of on the floor. You're not smiling. The, um, uh, so, so let me quickly walk you through the eight periods. It's very simple. This isn't hard. Eight periods of Old Testament history. And wherever you are in the Old Testament, you'll know where you are so you can begin to add to your rack. Okay? So we start with the period of the beginnings. That's the first 11 chapters of your Bible. The period of the beginnings, it's all this stuff that answers the why questions, creation and the Garden of Eden and the fall and the flood and Tower of Babel. That takes us up to Abraham about 2000 BC in the beginning of our second time period, the patriarchs, Abraham and his family. The line goes down because they went down into Egypt. And uh, when they settled physically south in Egypt, sadly, they were horribly inappropriately made slaves there. So the line gets kind of squiggly there. And thanks to our third time period, which is the Exodus, where Moses leads them out of slavery in Egypt and takes them to Mount Sinai and the tabernacle and the law. They wander in the wilderness. And then we come to our fourth time period, the conquest, when Joshua leads the children of Israel into their promised land. That takes us to the fifth period, the judges period. These are the books of judges and Ruth in your Bible, the first part of the book of 1 Samuel. These are seven cycles of apostasy. The people start in what we'll call summer. Everything is, is great and wonderful. they're walking with the Lord, and then there's the fall, they sin, they fall away from the Lord and, and God sends them pain because He loves them and there is punishment and they cry out in their pain to God and so He sends a deliverer and deliverer takes them through the springtime back to summer. Seven of those that take us up to King David Saul the first king, and David, the second king, and this is our sixth time period, the kingdom period. Now, the kingdom of Israel splits into two parts during the kingdom period. After David, it splits into a northern branch, the kingdom we call Israel, and the southern branch, which is called Judah, all right? The northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by Assyria. They were so horrible, they were so like the Assyrians that they just blended right in. They didn't travel to America, they didn't do anything else, they just blended into Assyria. They never returned, no, they never return and they're they're gone, okay? The southern kingdom of Judah is going to go down here, and this is where we are today. That's going to take us to our, after this, we'll come to our seventh time period, which is the exile. They also disobey God. They're taken away into Babylonian captivity and exile there, 70 years, just as Jeremiah predicted. And then the eighth time period, they come back in restoration. Okay, got it? That simple, that simple timeline works like, like this rack, Right? If you think about your closet, when you put very little effort out and you hang up the clothes, you can get what you need. If you don't, then you can't access what you need when you want to get it. In a similar way, it's important to get a handle on these eight very simple time periods so you can understand them and learn from God's Word. Let's go through them real quickly. Time period number one is the what? Really? Really? That's all I'm going to get? What's time period number one? Very good. Time period number two? Patriarchs. Patriarchs. Number three is the what? Number four? Number five, number six, number seven, number eight, you're a genius. It's amazing. Of course, you were looking at the slide. But all right, we meet Josiah right here. He's on the downhill slide to captivity. But get this, Josiah is going to arrest that slide for some time. And and maybe even more importantly, and this has direct impact on your life and your culture. Josiah sows seeds in his time. That bear amazing fruit in the dark days that are to come after his life is over. Open your Bibles to Second Chronicles 33. Second Chronicles 33, verses 21 through 25, give us the background for Josiah the boy wonder. Um, chapter 33, verse 21. Amon was 22 years old when he became king and reigned two years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his father Manasseh had done. Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images his father Manasseh had made, and he served them. But he did not humble himself before the Lord like his father Manasseh humbled himself. Instead, Ammon increased his guilt. So his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his own house. Then the common people executed all those who conspired against the king Ammon and made his son Josiah king in his place. Gracious, what a mess. Last time we learned about Manasseh. Not too surprisingly, Manasseh has a son who is as wicked as himself. But the son lacks Manasseh's later repentance to Yahweh. Ammon is really a nasty person. But notice something. He's more than just a bad man. He must be a bad leader. Um, His own guard and servants kill him. Throughout history, it is very rare for bad people to get killed, even if they are wretched spiritually. But bad leaders often get eliminated in a palace coup. Happens all the time. Like many later Roman emperors, Ammon is not only spiritually sick, he can't control his own palace, and he gets knocked off. The common people then, wisely, put away the murderers, and they set an eight-year-old descendant of David on David's throne. Josiah, son of Ammon, grandson of Manasseh, great-grandson of Hezekiah. Poor Josiah is eight years old. His dad is dead, and daddy wasn't much of a leader when he was around. And so we notice at the outset, Josiah has a God-sized need in his life. Uh, By the way, that's the headline I put in your notes. You got a bulletin when you came in. Take a look there on the left-hand side. You'll see that that headline. Josiah has a God-sized need. Even though he's been well-mentored by the high priest, his family leadership is awful. He does have a mother whose name means God's darling, but Josiah has no father. He is suddenly expected to rule a country that is a mess. One of the most Regular and tragic comments you hear as a leader of God's people is the pain of a person who lacks a loving, godly father. Those of you who have led life groups or Bible studies, uh, especially if you've done it for a long time, you know there is no pain like the pain in the eyes of someone who is longing for a daddy. It's a God sized need, this desire for a loving leader who fathers you. Years ago, my father and I, my earthly father and I, heard this guy, Pastor James Ryle. He's now deceased. Uh, but Ryle was a fascinating speaker. Now, his theology, some of it was pretty wildly unbiblical, but his life story is very inspiring. When James Ryle was a two-year-old Texas boy, his dad was sent to prison. The rest of his family was no better. By the time he was seven, he was placed in an orphanage. When he was 19, he was in a car wreck that killed uh, one of his best friends. He was upset, he was depressed, he was hurt, he had no money, he began to sell drugs to try and pay for his legal fees, he got caught, and he himself was sent to prison when he was 20. But in the penitentiary, James accepted Jesus Christ, and after he served his time, James went into the ministry. Pastor Ryle filled this God-sized void in his life through a relationship with the very word of God himself, Jesus. Years later, James sought out his earthly father. And, and when they got together, the talk, of course, turned to prison life, right? And James's dad asked him at one point, "Hey, James, which prison were you in?" And when James answered, his father reeled, literally reeled, and said, "What? I built that prison." It turned out that Pastor Ryle's dad was a welder who had worked on the steel for that state pen. So James looked out at all of us in the audience and he was speaking, and he said, "I was living in a prison that my dad built." Think about that. A God-sized need, living fatherless in the prison my dad built. However wonderful your dad and mine is incredible. Every one of us has something that we missed from our earthly father. Every one of us has some memory we'd long to erase, some form of paternal prison. It's certainly true of Josiah. It's a God-sized need. By the way, speaking of Josiah, I know what we're all thinking. In our uh, favorite Jimmy Stewart imitation, we're saying, what, what can this little boy do to overcome this present of his father's, my king? Right? Great question. Thank you for asking. Um, the answer is in chapter 34. Let's read verses 1 through 7. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the Lord's sight and walked in the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn aside to the right or the left. In the eighth year of his reign, when he was still a youth, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor David. And in the twelfth year, he began to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherah poles, the carved images, and the cast images. Remember, high places were places of idolatrous worship, pretty nasty places, usually up high on a mountain, although not always. Asherah poles are disgusting, sexualized form of really creepy, creepy idolatry. Uh, cast images are like what we think of as an idol, like a bronze you know, bust of something, all right? Uh, So, uh, then in his presence, in his presence, the altars of the Baals were torn down, and he chopped down the incense altars that were above them. He shattered the Asherah poles, the carved images, the cast images, crushed them to dust, and scattered them over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars, so he cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. He did the same in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, as far as Naphtali and on their surrounding mountain shrines. He tore down the altars. He smashed the Asherah poles and carved images to powder. He chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel and then returned to Jerusalem. Josiah becomes a godly leader. We're going to see a number of ways in which this amazing kid responds to his God-sized need. Josiah rises to the challenge the same way Pastor James Ryle did. He seeks God. Look, look, look at verse 3. Josiah sought God. This is always the answer to our need, to seek the Lord, especially in our fatherlessness. God promises that he is the father, all God's people said. Josiah, like millions of people since, seeks Yahweh and finds in him the perfect father. And God also gave Josiah a hero to emulate, a human hero. When he's only a teenager, Josiah looks to the life of another boy, an incredible leader, King David. And Josiah starts to imitate David in seeking God. Seeking God is the only answer to our need. True heroes always point to him because God himself is the ultimate hero. And God himself is the only thing that can fill the void in every one of our lives. Seeking God. And as Josiah sought God, he didn't he didn't just seek knowledge. Look, look at your text. Do you see him? Did he seek knowledge? No? Doesn't say that. He didn't seek wealth, doesn't say he sought fame, not any of the things that kings usually seek. He sought a relationship with the Almighty, and it changed him. Four years later, just four years later, he began to purge his land of idolatry. So think, what are you seeking? Some of us come here for experience. An experience some come here seeking wisdom some, some of us come for biblical knowledge and none of those things are bad but only those who come here in order to seek God himself only those people are changed into godly leaders of no compromise who change the world what's it going to be for you are you just going to seek what everybody else is seeking a good life whatever that means happiness fame security significance money If that's what you're seeking, I have very sobering news for you. Please listen. None of those things will fill the God-sized need in your heart. None of them. I know those things can be fine, and they're advertised on dozens of church billboards, but they cannot fill our deepest and most significant need, which is for God Himself. Only those who seek God Himself are changed into godly leaders of no compromise who change the world. Now... The parallel account of Josiah's life in 2 Kings makes it clear that this was not easy. Don't just think this was simple. The people who made their living off of the sex laden false worship trade were not going away without a fight. Some very powerful sectors of Judean culture were, were pretty hot. It's not easy to be a godly leader of no compromise, but Josiah stayed straight and true. He even shatters idolatry without regard for political fallout. Look, look at verse 4. He was present. The the TV cameras were rolling when he smashed down the the Baal altars. Think about what that means. Picture a reporter. This is Walter Cronkite here in Jerusalem. This 20-year-old young king of, Israel, of Judah who has really no experience is making what could be a very serious political blunder. He is smashing down the altars of Baal. This will have severe fallout internationally. Join us tonight on Frightline as we discuss this with Pharaoh Necho of Egypt and Babel Merodach of Babylon. That's what was going on, and Josiah doesn't care. He he shatters idolatry wherever he can find it, and he goes even further. Look, he exposes syncretism, syncretism, unholy things that don't belong together. He he crushed them to dust, the cast images, scattered them over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Now, what's going on here? Let, Let me explain. These are the graves. Picture I took from the Mount of Olives. These are the graves uh, that today still crowd, very much crowd the Kidron Valley uh, between Jerusalem, uh, Mount Zion in Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives on the other side of the Kidron Valley. Why are so many people dying to get buried here? I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Because, here's why, because by Josiah's time, the prophets have revealed that the Messiah is gonna come to save and the prophets declare that Messiah is going to bring the dead to life. And Messiah is foretold to appear on the Mount of Olives, the place from which I took that picture. But instead of trusting the coming Messiah for salvation, these people are looking only for their physical life, right? So they pay a lot of money to be buried here where the Messiah touches so they can be a Ponce de Leon fountain of youth kind of deal, right? Right? They don't really believe wholeheartedly in the coming Messiah for salvation. In fact, what they've done is they hedge their bets, we know from other texts, by sacrificing to Yahweh and also sacrificing to all these other false gods. And Josiah throws the idol dust on their graves. This is powerfully symbolic. You know what he's saying. He's saying all that you're getting out of the Messiah is is the dust off of his feet. And by the way, here's some of your own idolatrous dust just to start you off. Our syncretism today is just as convoluted. Look at this photo. Everybody look up here. I snapped this picture this last week while I was driving through Texarkana, Arkansas. This was a palm reader, a fortune teller, whose sign advertises that he or she is also God's messenger. (laughs) So creepy. Of course, so is what you do. Thousands of Christians do the same thing. We supposedly trust Jesus, and yet we read horoscopes religiously, which, if you don't know, is a nonsense that is forbidden dozens of times in the Bible. We think we trust God's word, and yet we put more credence in the words of people. Well, if the movies say that humans evolved from apes, it must be true, right? I I supposedly trust the Lord, and yet I find myself still adopting the leadership tactics of the world whenever I'm threatened. We live syncretized lives. That's why we see people who are wearing crosses screaming Right? That's why people with the Ichthus fish on their cars drive like maniacs. Right? By contrast, Josiah exposes syncretism. He shatters the idols and he seeks God. Let's be godly leaders like that. People of no compromise. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. And let's also live out Josiah's bold expansion of goodness. Josiah boldly expands his godly influence. Look at uh, 6 and 7. Josiah went way out of his comfort zone. In fact, he went way out of his very country. Uh, look, look, look at the map. Here's where Josiah traveled on his Make Israel Great Again tour. Um, he, went, he went very far afield past the borders of Judah. This really impresses me, especially the bravery of what he's doing. Josiah had no, he has no official standing in these places, none at all. It is just the force of his conviction that carries the day. His commitment to Yahweh is all he has. And the power of that commitment changed the lives of people wherever he went. And I can guarantee. I can guarantee you Josiah didn't take a large fighting force with him for protection or for influence on this northern journey. I can guarantee it because the areas that he enters are now the property of the Assyrian emperor, someone it does not do to anger. Unless he wanted an existential war and he did not, no king would ever take a large armed force into Assyrian lands. But this isn't reckless leadership by Josiah. In fact, what he's doing here is very, very wise. You see, God gives Josiah the inside scoop that Assyria is on the way out. This is earth-shattering information that probably nobody else in the world could imagine at that time. Assyria has been for 300 years the massive gorilla ruling over the world. And yet, not long after Josiah's death, Assyria is merely gonna be a bad memory. Folks, rarely in human history has an entire empire disappeared so completely as this one does. In preparation for that void that is soon to come, Josiah goes on a tour of all the old Israel territory, the northern kingdom of Israel. He establishes true Yahweh worship among those few Jews who are remaining in the old northern kingdom. This, this blesses those refugees, of course, but it does more than that. Think, it strengthens Judah, his country, because these converts, they become pilgrims who come to worship in Jerusalem as God has commanded. And further, this trip of his, this little trip of Josiah's, It's going to bear fruit hundreds of years later. You see, hundreds of years later, Israel is again going to be unified and thought of as one one territory, one country, Judah and Israel. And those places where Josiah visited and where it tells us that he worked, those become the places, this is amazing, those become the places where we see the most pure, healthy, biblical Judaism in the restoration period. It's really awesome. Now, on the right side of our notes, we see a second big category of Josiah's effectiveness. Josiah eliminates red tape. Josiah doesn't just get rid of bad worship. He gives the people a chance to enjoy truly good worship. So he rebuilds the temple of God in Jerusalem. Put a bookmark in 2 Chronicles. Okay, We're going to come back to it. Put a bookmark there. Flip back a couple of books to the west to 2 Kings 22. And we're going to read verses 22, verses 3 through 6. In the 18th year of King Josiah, "'The king sent the court secretary, Shaphan, son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, to the Lord's temple, saying, "'Go up to Hilkiah the priest, so he may total up the money brought into the Lord's temple, "'the money the doorkeepers have collected from the people. "'It is to be put into the hands of those doing the work, those who oversee the Lord's temple. "'They, in turn, are to give it to the workmen in the Lord's temple to repair the damage. "'They are to give it to the carpenters, builders, and masons to buy timber and quarried stone to repair the temple.' But no accounting is to be required from them for the money put into their hands since they work with integrity. Here's the situation. Josiah's great granddad reinstituted a thing called the temple tax. And for generations, this tax has just collected uh, in the hands of the priests and Levites. By the way, you, you do know... Governments hate to get rid of taxes even when they're no longer being used, right? So, all this temple tax money has just built up in the hands of the priests and Levites, and no one's doing anything with it. It reminds me of a report that I read last time I was in Britain, and uh, Her Majesty has a commission that issued this report. This fascinated me. They approximate that 120 million pounds, that's in money, not weight, of loose change is rattling around in the cars and couches of the United Kingdom. Isn't that amazing? Josiah practices astute economics, and and he decides to put all that loose change to work for the Lord. He says, gather it all up, give it to the work of restoration that is long overdue in the temple. And unlike most governments, Josiah practices astute economics while avoiding bureaucracy. I love verse 7. No accounting is be required from them for the money put into their hands since they work with integrity. Rather than let the bean-counting, rule-fixated Levites get a hold of this, Josiah says, just get out of their way and let them get to work. Get this. Chronicles, where you just turned from. Chronicles was most likely written by a Levite. It, it emphasizes the priesthood a lot. Interestingly, Chronicles leaves this verse out of its account. It's not that Josiah thinks accounting is bad, it certainly is not. The Bible encourages careful record keeping as part of a good, a good trusteeship. And yet, bureaucracy is not supposed to get in the way of God's work. Josiah cuts right through all that red tape. All right, now, flip back to 2 Chronicles 34. Go back to 2 Chronicles thirty four. Let's read verses twelve through thirteen. Here's another example of red tape that Josiah slices through. Verse twelve: The men doing the work, the men were doing the work with integrity. Their overseers were Yehath and Obadiah, Levites from the Mererites, and Zechariah and Meshullam from the Kohathites as supervisors. The Levites were all skilled with musical instruments. They were also over the porters and were supervising all those doing the work, task by task. Some of the Levites were secretaries, officers, and gatekeepers. Josiah puts everyone to work on this. Look, people who are professional musicians are made construction overseers. I know a few musicians. I can only imagine the resistance this could have caused, right? It's not that people shouldn't serve according to their strengths. They should. But there are certain seasons where the godly leader must step up and cry out, all hands on deck. Josiah knows how to cut through the red tape in times like that. Remember Pastor James Ryle, the guy I talked about? The word of God, the Messiah Jesus, changed his life and filled his God-sized need. Same thing happens for Josiah. The word of God changes his life. Look at verse 14, very next verse. When they brought out the money that had been deposited in the Lord's temple, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord written by the hand of Moses. All right, slide down to verse 18. Then Shaphan uh, Shaphan, the court secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book, and Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Then he commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the court secretary, and the king's servant, Isaiah, go, ask Yahweh for me for those, and for those remaining in Israel and Judah concerning the words of this book that was found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is poured on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord in order to do everything written in this book. While the reconstruction is going on, they find a copy of the law of Moses, quite possibly of the book of Deuteronomy, and Josiah responds to that word of God. Now, think about this. Think about this. Josiah is a good man. This is a godly leader. He, he is more holy than any other person who has preceded him on the throne of David. On top of that, the priests under Josiah have already begun reestablishing the traditions of, of worship, and, and everybody's very copacetic, and they're all patting themselves on the back about how traditional and holy and, and wonderful they are, and slam! into that cozy comfort jumps the living and active word of God and Josiah responds to it do we you see I fear that we are much more like Charlie Brown's sister Sally in this old Peanuts cartoon Charlie Brown says all right what happened in 1803 how should I know what happened in 1716 who cares what happened in 1601 how should I know why don't you know any of these dates I wasn't involved A friend of mine sent me that when we started this study of Judah's kings. Josiah could have reacted like that. Folks, this Deuteronomy scroll was almost 1,000 years old. He could have said, that has no bearing on my life today, right? But instead, King Josiah listens. He engages with this voice from the past. The first item of significance here is Josiah listens to God's word from the past. Look at verse 19. 19 says, Josiah heard 650 years later, Jesus would call to all people of all time, Him who has ears to hear, let him listen. Read it with me. Matthew chapter 11, verse 15, altogether. Anyone who has ears should listen. God the Father, when he spoke at the baptism of Jesus, what did he say? Read it with me. Matthew 17, verse 5, altogether. This is my beloved son. I take delight in him. Listen to him. Listen to him. Do we do that? Do we responsively listen to God's word? I received an incredibly encouraging note the other day. Uh, A man from far away uh, wrote me a letter, and he said, "Uh, Wayne, I so enjoy the way you teach the Bible that I don't even look at my watch when you preach. I just enjoy listening. Good for him. One of my fellow pastors, by the way, answered that nice letter, as they often do, and he wrote back, Wayne doesn't either. Funny funny guy, very funny guy. What fascinates me about Josiah is he is not hearing some stirring multimedia presentation of the Bible. The old, the old scribe is just reading the Bible, but Josiah really hears. He is moved to a righteous response because he listens. And, the, and, and, and that response is our second point of significance here. Josiah acts. He, he rends his clothes. Who can tell me what that means in, in Hebrew culture? Uh, he, he rends his clothes. What does that mean? It's a sign of what? Of grief, of mourning—it's deep mourning. It, 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 he doesn't stand on his high horse. Josiah, Josiah is a great and godly leader, and he humbles himself to trust God and respond to His word. So he tears his clothes, and look at verse twenty-one. He inquires of God what to do now. My goodness, that is brilliant. One of my old mentors, uh, Doctor Wimp. Train me to start every day declaring to the Lord my dependence upon him. He wanted me to pray this. Lord, what would you have me do today in response to your word? And and I recommend the same practice to each of you. Every day pray, Lord, what would you have me do today in response to your word? God's response to Josiah is found in 22 through 28. Look, Look at verse 22. So Hilkiah and those the king had designated went to the prophetess Huldah the wife of Shalom, son of Taketh, son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. They spoke with her about this. She said to them, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Say to the man who sent you to me, this is what Yahweh says. I'm about to bring disaster on this place and on its inhabitants, fulfilling all the curses written in the book that they read in the presence of the king of Judah, because they have abandoned me and burned incense to other gods in order to provoke me with all the works of their hands. My wrath will be poured out on this place, and it will not be quenched." Say this to the king of Judah who sent you to ask Yahweh. This is what Yahweh the God of Israel says. As for the words you heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against his inhabitants. And because you humbled yourself before me and tore your clothes and wept before me, I myself have heard. This is the Lord's declaration. I will indeed gather you to your fathers and you'll be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm bringing on this place and on its inhabitants. Then they reported this, they reported to the king. Okay, let's think for a minute. Folks, the prophets Jeremiah and Zephaniah are available. Jeremiah and Zephaniah, amazing pronouncers of God's truth. And they go to Huldah. They go to Huldah for God's interpretation. This is also of great significance, I think. It exposes how there is a complete lack of snobbery in God. We don't even know who this person is. Trying to help us understand who this person was, all the chronicler can say is she lived in the tract homes in the new part of town, and her husband's granddad was the chief tailor for the temple. That's it. The snob looks at that and says, big deal. Ralph Lauren's grandson's wife is not my idea of a reliable source of wisdom. Right? This is ridiculous. But God and Hilkiah the priest say, be quiet, and you listen to this girl. Friends, please Be careful. Some of the best comments in my life regarding the Scripture and its application to me have come from people that the wise would overlook. I'm not saying to avoid the seminary grads. That's fine. But please don't snub the children and the uneducated and the wives of tailors. They have a lot to say from God's Word. Now, look at the prophecy. There's two parts to it. Yahweh is just and he is merciful. First, Holder reminds everybody that God justly keeps his word that was given in Moses' law. For example, Deuteronomy 28 promised very severe punishments if the Jews reject God's clear words. Uh, Verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And various consequences follow, the biggest curse of which is they will be captured. That's Huldah's first issue. God is, is going to fulfill his words. He is just. Secondly, Huldah states that God gives mercy. God grants mercy on those who seek him. Yes, there is judgment. God couldn't withhold his judgment or he would no longer be holy. And yet Josiah is covered. Look, he's released from that judgment. This mercy becomes because of God's grace through Josiah's trust. Josiah is humble before scripture. He trusts Yahweh. And the eternal Abrahamic covenant makes it clear that sinful humans are given mercy by God's grace alone through faith in God alone. And this helps us understand why celebrating Passover is such a big deal to Josiah. We don't have time to cover it today, but you study it on your own at home. It's in chapter 35. It talks all about reinstituting the Passover. Passover it's where the Hebrew celebrates the mercy of God in saving the Israelites from slavery and death in Egypt. The blood of the perfect lamb was spread over the doorpost to save the lives of the Hebrews. Now get this. The prophets, coupled with the New Testament, to carry that truth past the ending day to the Mosaic Law, to carry it all the way into my life and yours. Those same two big ideas of holders are at work today. God is a just God. A person who is sinful must be judged, but, The Lord is also merciful, and he took the judgment on himself. A sinner who receives Jesus as his sacrifice is spared slavery and spiritual death. Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb who provides justice and mercy. By accepting him as your savior, you're applying the blood of his sacrifice to the doorpost of your heart. Jesus is our Passover, and there is nothing more significant. Finally, let's close with the last part of chapter 34. Go to verse 29. So the king sent messengers and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the Lord's temple with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem as well as the priests and the Levites, all the people from great to small. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. Then the king stood at his post and made a covenant in the Lord's presence to follow the Lord and keep his commands, his decrees, his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul in order to carry out the words of the covenant written in this book. He had all those present in Jerusalem and Benjamin agree to it. So all the inhabitants of Jerusalem carried out the covenant of God, the God of their ancestors. So Josiah removed everything that was detestable from all the lands belonging to the Israelites, and he required all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God. Throughout his reign, they did not turn aside from following Yahweh, the God of their ancestors. Josiah makes a lasting impact This wretched world needs people who will make a lasting impact. Please, please, let God mold you like Josiah. We need you. How how does Josiah leave a lasting impression? Three things. Number one, he issues a call to all. Do you see that? Notice that all the people, least and greatest, are included. There was no one left out. Too often, we only get excited about our opportunities to make an impact for Christ when we're dealing with the president of the company, right? Or some VIP or or we do, the, we do the opposite thing, we smugly leave out all of the VIPs because we wrongly assume that only those who are particularly impoverished and disadvantaged can really be holy to the Lord and deserve God's attention. How about instead we issue a call to all? Wouldn't it be great if every person knew just how to relate to the Lord Almighty because we share the truth with them from the least to the greatest? You know, lots of new people are going to be moving into your neighborhood and attending your schools over the next few weeks. Which ones are you bringing to church? The least and the greatest among you deserve a chance to be invited to worship. Be sure that you issue the call to all. Now, looking at 31 and 32, second thing, Josiah shows complete dedication. Do people really know what you stand for? Josiah makes a public declaration that he is sold out for God, and that makes everybody else stand with him. Listen, the Hebrew doesn't imply as the English does that he made or coerced them to stand by force. It says in the Hebrew that he compelled them by his stirring example. Ahiamod, what we translate agree, is a fascinating term. It it apparently originally meant to stand up straight, uh, posture, shoulders back, really good posture. Uh, Understandably, you can assume why, this came to be used of a military review, okay? That's the word the chronicler uses, ya'amod. There's really no good way to get it into our language unless, unless you want to say, Josiah was like a general that the troops respect so much that when he came by, they all stood up for his review. And there's a really, really cool play on words here. Look at verse 31. In verse 31, we're told the king stood at his post. Again, this is military terminology. I think the Holman captures it a lot better with post. And I think that's better than than place. Josiah is making a stand, not as an authoritarian king, but as a humble person who is standing on his post because he is so moved by God's word. And then in verse 32, the people, they are moved by Josiah's example and they take a stand as well. A young man in our church was giving a patriotic speech at his school, his high school. Okay, And at the end of his speech, he finished his speech, really good speech, and he said, and we've got to take a stand. We really need to stand. And he didn't actually intend for people to physically stand. That wasn't the point. He meant it, he meant it metaphorically. But the audience all started standing up and applauding. They started standing. That's mode, right? Complete dedication does that. When you take a stand and just delightfully live your life as a person of God's word, it's amazing how many other people stand with you. The result is God's continued blessing. Throughout his reign, they did not turn aside from following Yahweh, the God of their ancestors. That's what you and I want. We want to be such salt in this world that it tastes good wherever you and I are. We want to be the light of the world that by relying upon Jesus and committing to him, we lead others in continued blessing. Josiah was committed to continuing to grow up in God and it led to continued blessing all his days. Let's do the same. All God's people said? And that, dear friends, is why we have studied Josiah and all these other ancient kings. We live in a dark, mixed-up world, just as Josiah did. And we need to make a lasting impact because because we ya'amod. We stand up like Josiah, and we continue to grow up in God's word. That friend of mine who sent me the peanut strip we read earlier, she suggested that I remind you of something that we discussed very early in this series, that God's strategy for keeping the good and throwing out the bad is the study of history. The only question is, Will I humbly learn from it or proudly rebel? Pray with me, please. Father, I pray that I will humbly learn from your word, and that so will my brothers and sisters. I beg you that you will cause us to stand on your word, to continue to grow and live out who we are in you. In every, Even today, as we're, as we're watching baseball or football or golf, as we're doing homework, as, as we're giving the offering that we're about to give, let us give it standing strong on your word, delighted, at who we are in you because that that does inspire others whether we see it or not. In Jesus' name, amen.